0: Uh, Joy and I moved into the house that we're living in at the moment uh, nearly two years ago. And our new neighbours then, uh, as they were, they had a large portrait of Jesus on their wall that you could see from the driveway. Uh, It turns out they were Catholic. And I was asking them about uh, which church they go to. And they said, well, it all depends on uh, what we're doing on that Sunday and how it's looking. So we can go uh, to the 9 a.m. service uh, at Sacred Heart or we can go to the 10.30 service at uh, St. Peter Chanel. And as I, I talked with them, I realized that there was, there was no connection for them to a particular congregation of people. But rather, they were committed to participating in a religious service, and it, it didn't really matter who was there. What was important to them was the ceremony of Roman Catholic Mass. And, and the people... Sitting in the pews next to them, well, that's sort of incidental and secondary. It's a strange conversation for me because, because I I can't conceive of church as something disconnected from a a particular congregation of people. I wonder what it is that brings you along here each week. Are there Christian rites and rituals? albeit shaped because we're in a Baptist church, that make you turn up here 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Or is it the people, the brothers and sisters in Christ? You're, you're here to meet them, to connect with them, to care for them. Now, before you say, oh, I'm here for the people, I want us to look uh, particularly at 1 Kings 8 and recognise that there is more to church than just the people around me. There are things that we do as a church congregation that you don't just do as individuals or even a a group of Christian friends. There's congregational singing and corporate prayer. There are Bible readings and sermons. There are baptisms and the Lord's Supper. There's a leadership structure through elders and deacons. There's something formal and organized about the gathering of God's people. There's a, a form, a pattern to our corporate meetings as a church that that are different to being part of a midweek Bible study or two Christians getting together to read the Bible and pray one-to-one or family devotions with the children. Now, the, the word get, that gets wheeled out to describe that difference is often the word worship. And people say, look, oh, we've come to church this morning to worship God. Uh, But when you uh, look through the New Testament, the word worship is never used to describe what we're doing here when we gather. Uh, The New Testament does talk about believers uh, worshiping in the future, and so sort of the book of Revelation gives us a picture of people bowing down and worshiping the Lord, but Fundamentally, when the New Testament talks about life here and now, it's an expression of all of life worship. Christians worship the Lord through work and play, through family life, through car journeys, through the chores and the tasks, and 24 hours a day, seven days a week is supposed to be worship. All of life is an expression of worship to God. Now, we wouldn't want to say that, What we do on a Sunday is not worship as though we are to worship the Lord all the time apart from Sunday mornings. There is a sense though in which as we gather on a Sunday it is a different form of worship. Different than what we're doing the rest of the week. So let's call it corporate worship because it's something that happens when we gather together. It's more than just something that we do individually and independently, like my Roman Catholic neighbors, indifferent to people around them. There, there's a real sense in which, we, we, which corporate worship is a group activity. Uh, we need the involvement and the participation of brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's that theme of corporate worship that I want to explore as we come to uh, 1 Kings this morning. Uh, if you were here last week for all the hard work of 1 Kings 5, 6, and 7 with all the exhausting detail of the uh, the materials and the construction and the decoration of the temple, we, we come to chapters 8 and 9. We come to the party celebrating the completion of the building project. And this is Solomon's finest hour. This is the climax of God working across centuries to bring about this event. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, it all leads to this pinnacle moment. This is the high point of the Old Testament. Nothing uh, is more significant than until we get to Jesus appearing uh, and entering our world. As far as the Old Testament goes, this is as good as it gets. And this is an incredible celebration, a party that went on for two full weeks. I've never been to a party like that. Uh, most of the celebrations I go to, uh, you know, come on for a few hours in an evening. Perhaps it's a day celebration, something like Christmas or, or a weekend. For, you know, family have gathered over a weekend. Even then, it's hard to keep the celebration going. For, but for two weeks at some party. Now, it started with verse 5. A sacrifice of so many sheep and cattle, they couldn't be counted. And after the opening day uh, was completed, verse 63, 142,000 animals are slaughtered. That is a lot of meat. That is a big barbecue. Uh, this is a feast like any other in Israel's history. Uh, this is one of those kind of historical events to be remembered across generations. Can you imagine being there? The, the smell of this mega, mega sacrificial barbecue, uh, to watch the, the pomp and ceremony of the priest, to see the ark of God, the glory of God descending as a cloud, to watch as the leader of the denomination pull the cord to reveal a plaque dating the opening of this temple Build, Oh, no, that didn't happen. That's just uh, church buildings like us. Uh, there was a lot going on at this dedication ceremony. But the focus of this long chapter, it isn't on the sacrifices, it isn't on the spectacle, it's not on the crowds. It's just on one man and what he says to God and what he says about God. And the topic that controls Solomon's words is a topic of worship. He doesn't use that word, but that's the big idea of the chapter. That's the chief purpose of the temple. Solomon talks about how people are to relate to God, what's to shape corporate gatherings, what are the priorities and the principles for a a congregation when they gather together. This could be one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, as it tells us what God is looking for from people like us. there's, There's a whole lot in this chapter, but I've just picked four things, four important aspects of corporate worship that Solomon sets before us. Now, if you've been here for the earlier chapters, uh, and you're you're here for the coming chapters, we will see that Solomon gets a lot wrong. Uh, He is conflicted, flawed, but this was his moment. Uh, In 1 Kings, we see and hear Solomon as God's truly wise and insightful king. And Solomon's words have been preserved for us and, and we are to take to heart what it means for God's people corporately to relate to God. So let's look at four important aspects of that uh, worship, corporate worship from 1 Kings. Firstly, uh, corporate worship is covenantal. Now, now there's a big word that we don't use every day. It's like a formal agreement. It's like a contract but in many ways bigger than that. The Treaty of Waitangi is fundamentally a covenant. That idea was certainly in the minds of the missionaries who drafted it. And as a covenant, it's outlasted the people who signed it. It's an agreement between the parties that's bigger than the individuals who were there when it was first established. Well, God made a covenant at Mount Sinai with the Israelites. He will be their God. They will be his people. We'll be in a special relationship. And here are the rules. And God gives them uh, the, the two stones tablets and Moses fills out the details. And their relationship is defined by this covenant. Uh, generations of Israelites have come and gone, but the Lord has pledged himself to Israel. He is in a covenantal relationship with them. As a nation, he's committed to keeping the promises he's made to them and this chapter shouts out that worship in this place is based on and and founded on the covenant that the lord has made with his people Uh, the chapter this chapter more than nearly any other chapter in the bible keeps talking about israel 35 times israel 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 the nation that has a covenantal relationship with the lord and therefore this is the nation out of all the nations to build a temple for the lord And the covenant's foundation document, written on the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, that's transported in the ark of the Lord, verse 1, placed, verse 6, in the most holy place of the temple. They're reminded again and again that the covenantal promises that God made have been kept. So verse 23, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. This relationship between God and Israel is on the basis of this covenant that they made at Mount Sinai. And that covenant relationship is fundamental to the temple that Solomon is dedicating in this chapter. Now today, we here, we gather as people of God And we do so on the basis of a covenant. It's God's covenantal relationship with us through Jesus that makes corporate Christian worship possible. See, when we worship, we are celebrating the fact that this God has drawn people like us together, but on the basis of a covenant. It's the new covenant relationship established with Jesus. It's such a fundamental concept that our Bible is divided into two halves. The Old Testament, that is, the Old Covenant, the era of the Mount Sinai Covenant, and the New Testament, that is, the New Covenant, the era of a covenant relationship established through Jesus' death and resurrection. We operate under Jesus' New Covenant. But it's still a covenant. Our worship of God is shaped and controlled and established by this covenantal relationship when we get together as God's people we're doing so celebrating God's covenant commitment to us and the shape of the new covenant through Jesus will shape our corporate worship so for example why don't we offer animal sacrifices like they did because we're under Jesus new covenant there's no requirement for animal sacrifices because he has been the sacrifice once for all. No barbecued animals are required for forgiveness of sins. See, our corporate worship as a congregation is intimately connected with God through the covenant, the promises, the contract that is made with us through Jesus. And that covenant relationship connects us with all the other people who've entered into a new covenant relationship with the Lord. Stretching back 2,000 years, reaching around the globe, pressing forward to the return of the Lord Jesus. So, it'd be a mistake to think that what we're engaged here in Hastings Baptist Church is something that, well, we kind of just dreamed up for us. This is our little club that we're doing this thing over the last hundred years or so. When we gather for corporate worship on a Sunday morning, we are expressing that we're taking our place under the new covenant established by Jesus. We're part of something much bigger and deeper and more profound, a covenant that connects us to all God's people pressing right back to the beginning. What we do here is, Sunday by Sunday, is shaped and controlled by our new covenant relationship to the Lord and with everyone else who comes under that covenant. Now, we may give our Sunday congregational meetings a a contemporary feel, but whatever we do should still reflect our covenantal relationship with the Lord. Corporate worship is covenantal. Great big word. Let me give you another big word. Couldn't find a smaller one, sorry. Corporate worship is paradoxical. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, Solomon knows that there is one very large flaw with his plans to build a big house for the Lord. Uh, Yes, he's been commissioned by the Lord to build it. Uh, Yes, he's made it properly and reverently. But the one big problem is an obvious one. The Lord doesn't live in a house. Verse 12, Solomon said, The Lord said, that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Verse 27, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This chapter is like the rest of the Bible. It echoes the nearness And the closeness of God, so near, so close that that he dwells with his people. He hears our prayers. He knows our hearts. But at the same time, this is the majestic and great God who is holy and higher. He cannot be contained. He cannot even be fully understood. See, God is personal and present and intimate. But God is also transcendent and distant and immense. When we worship God, it's always paradoxical. We are holding these two great truths in tension. How can God be close and yet distant? How can he be intimate and yet other? How can he be present and yet ruling over all? So When we sing and when we pray, we know that God is close and attentive but the Lord also receives our praise and answers our prayers, is also almighty and uncontainable. It's a paradox. We can't get our heads around how both these realities could be true. And so often our temptation is we just pick one or the other. We like to make God a distant observer, who's very majestic and all that, but but he's remote and distant. He just leaves us to get on with whatever we want to do on a Sunday morning. Or we like to make God an appreciative audience member who's here, he's, he's one of us, he's sitting in the pew next to you. And we meet, as, and we meet every church, as we meet as a church every Sunday, there's this little that tells us that he is majestic, he is the God of the universe. Or we can treat him so confidently that he's kind of present, and he's super excited to be here and he's so happy. It's either one or the other. But the God who reveals himself in the Bible is the God who is both a consuming fire and the God who sings over us with rejoicing. He's the God who makes his home with us, but he's also the God before whom every knee must bow. You see the idea in verses 10 and 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. See, the cloud both reveals God and hides God's glory. This is the God who comes to us, but also the God who hides himself so that we will not see all of him. True corporate worship captures both these elements of God's nature. We, we need them both. We should be mindful of these realities. We sing of the greatness of God, but we also sing of his love and his care. We pray, asking God to bring wars to an end on the other side of the world, and we ask for personal encouragement in our time of need. We come to the Bible and we, we see God's plans across millennia, but we also want the scriptures to speak to our hearts today. We need to grasp the reality that this is what God is like. Both of those things. And hold that tension, that paradox together. Corporate worship is paradoxical. Uh, thirdly, corporate worship is word centered. Uh, in this chapter, we see the Ark of the Covenant's last appearance in the Old Testament. After this chapter it doesn't get a mention in kings and if you roll to the end of two kings there's no mention of it being taken away by Nebuchadnezzar when he uh, destroys the temple and takes away all the other temple bits and pieces. We don't know what happened to the ark. You need to ask King Arthur and the Knights of the Holy Grail or Indiana Jones uh, but as far as the writers of the Old Testament are concerned they could care less. Somebody lost it. Oops. Uh, Wouldn't you think it was a big deal? I mean, how do you lose an ark? It's the big gold box with the sticks out of it. Whatever happened to it, there's no discussion of this lost box in the Old Testament. You'd think they'd mind. Well, not if you get the logic of this chapter and Solomon's speech and prayer. The box is transported into the temple without any incidents, unlike when David tried to move it. But uh, what's the most important thing about this box in this chapter? Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Uh, for Bible scholars, gone from the ark of a jar of manna and Aaron's rod. No mention, no bother, no concern, they're just gone. Bits and pieces seem to go missing. But the point is, the ark is just a box, and it's empty, apart from the word of the Lord himself. And why do we need to know that? Because we need to know that at the heart of the temple is a simple reminder that God is a talking God. Uh, Solomon keeps pointing this out. that The God of heaven speaks and his voice is heard. So verse 15, then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his own mouth to make to my father David. For he said, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt and so on. Verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you've kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth. You've promised and with your hand you've fulfilled it to this day. Verse 25, now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promise you made to him when you said, verse 26, now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. Again and again, God is a speaking God. The ark is there ultimately as a reminder that the Lord is a talking God. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16, the prophet says that the day is coming when they wouldn't miss the ark or even remember the ark, let alone bother to remake, remake the ark. Why not? Because Jeremiah says all the nations will gather in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And what will they find when they come into his presence? The Lord alone is a talking God. He will speak. The ark is the sign that worship in the temple isn't ultimately about the blood of bulls or 120,000 sheep and goats or religious objects like the ark. It's the worship of the God who talks. Corporate worship is driven and defined by what God says. That was the case in the old covenant temple worship. It's the same for new covenant Christian worship. We're not concerned with bits and bobs of religious artifacts. What we're concerned with is a speaking God, which is why the Bible is at the center of church life. See, Scripture is not merely a record of what God once said back then. No, Scripture is God's contemporary word, what He is speaking to the church now. And so, uh, corporate worship will be centered around the speaking God and His word spoken to us. Fourth, last, corporate worship is. Repentant. Uh, as we read through Solomon's prayer, uh, it becomes obvious that Solomon sees one of the key functions of the te- of temple worship is going to be Israel saying sorry quite a few times. Uh, from verse thirty one, Solomon works through a list of six scenarios of the bad things that. Uh, might come Israel's way because they've broken the covenant and one promise to hear the prayers of foreigners, verse 41. So verse 31, when anyone wrongs their neighbor. Verse 33, when your people, Israel, have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you. Verse 37, when famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whether disaster or disease may come. Uh, verse 44, when your people go to war against their enemies. Verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away or near. It'd be hard to to uh, describe Solomon as optimistic about the future for Israel. Uh, he's not telling them how to celebrate when you're doing so well. What's his prayer for the future? You're going to stuff it up again and again and again and again. That's what this temple is here for. He knows what this national life is going to be like for Israel. But he also knows there is forgiveness for people who who throw themselves on God and ask for his mercy. And there is mercy to be had, verse 47, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captives. Remember, this is where the first readers of this book are. They are in exile. They are captives. And say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people. Now, do you see something rather strange here? Uh, Where is Solomon when he prays this prayer? He is in the Jerusalem temple, and what is filling the air as he prays this prayer? What can he smell? The the smoke, barbecued animals. They've sacrificed a gazillion animals with plenty more lined up uh, for the same fate. What does Solomon not say about sacrifice? He doesn't say that it brings forgiveness. Forgiveness for us comes when we repent and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. There is sacrificial blood everywhere around the temple, but Solomon says we need to come to God in repentance. See, biblical worship is repentant, worship the christian life is a life of repentance see what does it mean to to continue on the christian life what's the sign that i'm still a christian oh my moral achievements my great victories no the sign that i'm still a christian is i'm repenting today i'm coming back to the lord i'm confessing my sins Every day is a day of repentance. The sign that you're carrying on for Jesus is you are continuing to repent. That's the shape of the Christian life and that's the shape of corporate Christian life. To worship is to repent and believe the good news. When we gather together Sunday by Sunday, part of our corporate worship needs to be repentance. Uh, from the earliest days of the Christian church, the, the pattern of church gatherings basically the same. Start with some kind of adoration, praise, some kind of song or a psalm. And follow that with a, a plea for mercy, a confession of sin, an assurance of pardon. Up until a few decades ago, the, the entire Christian church was agreed on the fact that, that all worship had to be repentant worship. Part of what we're doing when we come together for corporate worship is to repent, to confess our sins, and once again be reassured of forgiveness in Christ. Part of what you need to do as you come is, I'm coming as a repentant sinner, Sunday by Sunday. Part of gathering is my expression that I am still part of the people of God for I'm continuing to repent, not only individually, but corporately, together. See, the way to joy and rest and relief and release is through repentance. Our repentant worship, that's what delivers what we need. You see uh, in Solomon's requests, these different categories, what are they to do? Look towards the city, look towards the temple, cry out, For mercy from God in heaven. If you were here with us last week, we looked at what does the temple point to? What does it mean? It's the meeting place of God and humanity that we see ultimately fulfilled fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who describes himself as the temple of God. See, in Solomon's day, they looked towards a building, a piece of geography. What do Christian believers look towards? Oh, we look towards the temple the true and living temple, the Lord Jesus. And we look to him and we call out to our Father in heaven for forgiveness for our sins. Whatever your situation, you look to the Lord Jesus and you call out for forgiveness. And God is a God of mercy and through Christ, the real temple, comes forgiveness. Four important aspects of corporate worship. Covenantal paradoxical word-centered repentant let's pray together father we want to give you praise and thanks you are a great god a god of mercy a god who hears our prayer a god who is spectacular and majestic and a god who is fatherly and tender and caring help us to hear your word to us today Help us to trust in you for rescue and for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.